0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro.
1: Welcome back to Explore the Space and welcome to episode number 153. There is a lot going on at Explore the Space podcast and I'm very excited to Remind everybody that tickets to the first live show for Explore the Space are available. It's a collaboration between myself and Emily Silverman and the Nocturnus podcast. It's on October 18th in San Francisco at the Gray Area Theater. Tickets are available. There is a link in the show notes. We would love to have you come. It's going to be a really interesting night. We are going to be focusing on getting out of the comfort zone, and that is exactly what we will be doing that night. I am really excited about it, and there are still some tickets left. So if you're available on October 18th, please do come and check us out. You can always email me anytime, Market at Explore the Space Show. You can find me on social media. I'm very active on Twitter, at ETS Show, and you can Also find me on Instagram at Explore the Space Show. So October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and this episode is actually a re-release of an earlier episode of Explore the Space that originally aired on October 26th of 2016. My guest in this episode is Jessica Shapiro. She is the voice of Explore the Space podcast. She's the voice you hear at the top of the show and the voice you hear at the end. She is a breast cancer survivor, and she is my wife. It took us a long time to decide to actually do this episode, and when I released it several years ago, we were both kind of nervous about it, but it met with an amazing response, and I'm still just blown away by Jessica's candor and honesty and openness in describing a really intense, frightening personal journey. It's interesting for me as her husband to kind of go back down that road of memories as well and I hope that you find this episode interesting and meaningful. There's a link to the National Breast Cancer Foundation's website in the show notes as well. Please go and take a look there as well. There's lots of information around Breast Cancer Awareness Month also. The original episode is in the archive. You can go check out the archive at www.explorethespace.show. It is episode number 46 So if you want to go into the archive and find the original version, you can find it. There's no difference. It's the exact same show except for this introduction, actually. Please do take a moment and subscribe to Explore the Space. We're on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please do leave us a rating and a review. It really helps the show out. It helps other people find this episode as well. I haven't done a re-release before. This felt like the right time to note that it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month and to re-release this episode with Jessica Shapiro. So without further ado, here she is. Welcome back to Explore the Space. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and I thought there would be no more fitting person to join me than the voice of Explore the Space. Uh, My wife, Jessica Shapiro, is a breast cancer survivor. She does the bumper at the beginning of the show, and she's the last thing you hear when the show wraps up. We've taken a lot of time and a lot of thought and a lot of discussion about whether we wanted to do this or not. But we decided that this is a story worth telling, a story worth sharing, and it's a very compelling story. And so, without further ado, Jessica, welcome to Explore the Space.
0: Welcome to my studio.
1: (laughs) That's right. So, take us back a little bit. It's been a few years now. When did this all start?
0: This all started in January of 2008.
1: So about eight years ago, and I will say, and we've talked about this a lot, the dates, times, and specifics, I'm foggy on. (laughs) Um, I think it was probably a brain protective mechanism, but I'm pretty foggy on a lot of this. So I do remember, so it was 2008 and going into that year, where were you in your life and how old were you and where was this issue? Why was this issue even on the table for you?
0: So I was 30. I had just turned 30 at the end of the previous year. Uh, you and I had just celebrated our nuptials.
1: <laughs> That's right. We
0: got married in September. So, along with this awesome husband, I got new insurance, and I was set up to meet a new round of, you know, primary care physician. And right, the reason that anything regarding breast cancer screening, which is what I think you're talking about was on my radar was because my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was about 11 or 12. So she was, uh, late thirties, early forties, I believe premenopausal cancer. And at the time this was in like 90, 1990 or 91. Yeah. So she was 41. So the oncologist spoke with her, you know, she's, Has concerns. I have a daughter. What should she think about going forward? And I don't know how it came about, but they came up with the number that I should do self-exams, obviously, uh, all the time, you know, once a month, same time of the month. That's important, Mm -hmm. girls. And then that I should get a mammogram at 30. And um, the conversation I recall was, you know, not get them forever starting at 30, but get one at 30 to see where you're at and then go from there and, you know, keep an eye and be careful. So,
1: so you turned 30 and we got you connected with a new primary care provider. And we knew (laughs) going into this, we knew pretty early. I mean, it was something that came up when we were dating and that this would be something that would need to just be on our radar.
0: Yeah. So it was something that I had been thinking about since I was about 12.
1: Right. Right. So when you met with your, your new doc, it was a It was a tricky interaction. I remember I was at work and we were both waiting to see how that was going to go and uh, you called me uh, to talk about the next step because you it was suggested that at the age of thirty you didn't need to get your first screening test right
0: It felt odd because I feel like in general, I communicate well I feel like in general i interact with medicine. Well, you know, sometimes I read your magazines, I get it and the lingo and it's not a challenge for me to have a normal interaction with a physician. Like it really can be for a lot of people. But her opinion was that I should not have a mammogram that I was far too young and that it would expose me to an, an, an unnecessary and possibly harmful amount of radiation over time starting now would, would be dangerous for that reason. And I wasn't able to convince her that my goal was not to now have all the mammograms. It was to have one and see what that showed and then talk about that further. So it was difficult not being able to convey that, that goal that I felt was reasonable for me.
1: So this is an interesting subject because we obviously had other avenues that we could take because I knew other people and we were able to pursue those. But for someone who is sort of stuck and needs to be able to advocate for themselves, talk a little bit about the importance of being able to be your own best advocate. What does that look like? What does that sound like?
0: Well, that's the part that kind of roused me up the most, honestly, about everything that happened to me is that, of course, it's counterfactual thinking, right? So you think about... Oh, if, if such and such hadn't worked out, where would I be? What would have happened to me if the actual truth that happened hadn't happened? If we had gone down a different hypothetical road, right? That I sort of feel like the reason that I was able to get the care I needed was because I was married to you. That's not fair. It's not. Uh, It kind of roused me up that I only got what I needed because I was so lucky in how I was positioned in life with you, with your connections, with our relationship dynamic, and also with sort of, you know, my feistiness and pushiness. And (laughs) you have to have that. It's not an easy situation to be in for, I think, any layperson with a doctor when they say, no, you don't need this. It's not an easy thing to push through with when they say, no, you don't need this thing that you've heard, will be uncomfortable and scary and generally not fun. Um, I think a lot of people's first reaction would be, awesome, yay, I avoided that test. But I think it's important to know your own history, your own family's history, your own goals, and you know what you're actually trying to get out of that. Um, I think that's what made me comfortable in in pushing more. Even, yeah. if it, even if it hadn't been easy to push more, which it was because of us, that's what made me want to push more. Mm-hmm.
1: You ended up getting the test you needed to start off with, which was a mammogram. And I remember the dynamic was such an interesting one. One of the things that healthcare does, and it's not intentional, but it does have a tendency to inadvertently and without any sort of malice separate people. So when you were getting your study done, I was in the waiting room. I think both of us were nervous going into it, but didn't know exactly what to expect. When you heard the technician say that they needed to take more pictures and they were going to go get me, Mm -hmm. what was that moment like?
0: Awful. That was awful. Yeah. Really bad. I, I think I stayed pretty calm in that moment, but I was you know, it's not good. (laughs) That's not a good thing that you want to hear. Um, I was hoping, okay, maybe I have really dense breasts and the machines acting up today, (laughs) or you kind of, you know, you can kind of lead yourself down the garden path only so much, but you're right that I think that's a really good point about how medicine separates you is whether you're just meeting your doctor for your annual or you're hospitalized with a, traumatic surgery you're not there with your support network you're on your own yeah um and you're vulnerable it's, yeah. it's um uh, it's unsettling yeah
1: it's a difficult spot and I remember when uh, the technician and she was really sweet she was great she and was. she just said Dr. Shapiro we're going to take some more pictures but we would like you to come on back and I just knew I was like oh boy this is yeah. it's not a normal study and let's tool up
0: the first time she said she was going to take more pictures that was when i was kind of uh giving myself a, a few little happy delusions and then she subsequently wanted to take more and i'm going to go get your husband and i said oh okay yeah big day here
1: big day <laughs> <That's> <laughs> we're right. not
0: just having a tuesday we're having a big day
1: was it a tuesday i don't know <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> i remember the the drive home we were together thankfully yes um and we were not in a place where we had a good understanding of what we had seen. Um, and, you know, we tried to connect with, uh, you know, the the doc who would be your oncologist going forward who would kind of supervise this first batch of testing. As someone who's just heard that diagnosis, what does it feel like?
0: I think I was totally outside of my body, just hovering. Ugh. I, you know, your thoughts are going a million miles an hour. You're trying to stay calm. You're trying to still, I hadn't been given a diagnosis. So you're not trying to live a life of a person with cancer. You're trying for every last second you have to still not have cancer, to still not be a person with cancer. But um, it takes an enormous amount of force to convince yourself that you're not there yet. Um, so it's a lot of energy and, uh, I remember your mother was in town. We were going to go to Cirque du Soleil. I mean, we were.
1: Both my parents were in town. I remember. Yes. I remember. We were
0: trying to be normal right. and ex- like <laughs> it ex- was hard. expending yeah. an enormous amount of energy to get there. And it's, uh, you can't really be present as much as you, as, as you want, uh, when you're, when you're sort of living two different lives at the same time.
1: The whole point of this podcast is to look at that interface where healthcare and those involved in healthcare and people who are interested or have to access or have it it thrust upon them, how that interface looks. This is such a difficult subject. It's so hard to talk about. If you have a few things, what are the tools – for someone who is going to be delivering bad news, who is going to be having that discussion, whether they're the mammogram technician, the physician, the counselor, whomever it is, like you say, you're, just, you're holding on for anything else. You're trying to stay positive. Are there levers that you can pull to at least give someone a sense of assuredness that they're not just gonna walk off into the desert totally on their own?
0: Luckily, I had some very good interactions along with some very bad interactions with a variety of healthcare professionals. Some of my doctors were amazing and some were a little bit more distant and some of the techs you know, it was a really wide spectrum. So I think I can answer that question. Um, sit down with your patient, make sure your patient has a place to sit. <laughs> yeah. That was one
1: yeah. really
0: hardly, hardly, you know, lesson that we had to learn the hard way, I guess. So sit down, make sure your patient can sit down, be at the same level, take your time. Don't act like this is a regular day because it's not for the person you're talking to. It might be for you, but it's really not for the person you're you're talking to.
1: No, it's not.
0: I also had some really kind, like, you, you know, I, I don't think you have to fully emotionally engage, which is difficult for a lot of people, especially when they're in a profession where that can be extremely taxing. I don't think you have to completely open up and be vulnerable in order to give somebody a little bit of an emotional lift in that situation. Um, I remember when I got my biopsy, The nurse that was in there with me was just nice, you know, she just was nice and took her time and she explained what was happening really well. And then right at the end, she just kind of put her hand on my, uh, you know, gave me a little pat or something and said, you can do this. So it wasn't this like nebulous massive challenge. It was somebody that really knew what was required, knew what I was in for, but she told me it was doable. So that I mean that's just so small, but I rem- I'll always remember that.
1: Mhm. And then the pivot of talking with friends and family about this. And that was something that you and I had to do together. The worst. It's the worst. But we we know how frequently cancer touches the lives of people and that Most of us in our lifetime are going to experience it either directly or peripherally that someone that they care about will be diagnosed with cancer of some type or another. What were the responses that you got from people when you talked with them that made you feel the most assured, made you feel the most warmth that you had a community that was going to support you on this journey?
0: I want to redirect that a little bit because I I don't think that it's when someone tells you they have cancer it's horribly upsetting for yeah. for you to hear. So I never expected anybody to do anything for me in wow. that moment. I wow. felt horrible about what I was giving to their life yeah. in that yeah. moment. Um and a lot of those first interactions I had were not warm. <laughs> they were horrible. <laughs> they were crying. I mean yeah. they were it was it was extremely upsetting. Um, some people were a little more stiff upper lip than others. Um, but it's, it's not something that I think anybody should feel any pressure to like step up to the plate right away. And down the road, there were people that showed up in action, you know, that brought over a box of Mad Libs and colored pencils and really fun art supplies and tried out a new cupcake recipe with us. And I remember my book club was amazing. They put themselves on a schedule to bring meals when I had surgeries. So, Those are the things that make you feel supported, but I don't think that people that are close to a cancer patient, you know, you have to give yourself a time to process that information and and be sad about it too.
1: It's another one of those things where I don't remember telling a lot of people because I remember we said, okay, there's certain people from my life that I'll tell. There's people from your life that you'll tell. It was sort of, we just said we need to get this done. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the people that I told, I don't remember.
0: I think you're so wise to have had that, that little, uh, brain shield because those are <laughs> it's not
1: wisdom. Well, it was just luck.
0: It's great. Yeah. Those are the things that I struggle yeah. to forget. Those yeah. are the conversations that I struggle to forget. I really would love to forget those.
1: Yeah. So then you go into this hugely challenging, momentous, life-changing event where, as you said, you had a biopsy, you got a tissue diagnosis, we made a plan. And I remember that the, you've always been decisive, but there was that one moment where I felt the most confident that we were going to be okay and that you were going to be able to marshal your resources and navigate well was when you were asked about what sort of surgery you wanted. Yeah. Um, and in terms, the biggest question being was, with mastectomy on the table, did you want to have one side or both? That question was barely out of the doctor's (laughs) mouth. You knew exactly what you wanted. It wasn't negotiable. It was crystal clear. And then we were just able to act on that. You opted to have bilateral mastectomy surgery, and it was non-negotiable. That's a huge choice. And you had a level of assuredness that I think made everyone – feel assured because of the way you approached it which was amazing
0: i'm so glad that had a positive impact on you i had no idea
1: it did it (laughs) definitely did but where did that come from i mean that's a that's a wellspring of inner strength around a you know a, a mind and body altering surgery that you had absolutely no reservation crystal clear let's go
0: you mentioned that I am a decisive person, and I am. I think a lot of people struggle a little longer with that, what choice they're going to make. Um, I, I remember uh, watching a 60 Minutes segment about a family of women that were getting uh, BRCA testing and deciding to have preventative mammogram or a mastectomies. And I remember thinking, Boy, that is extreme. Ha! <laughs> 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 um, you know, it's a, of course sort of a weird thing to talk about as a woman. Are your breasts a part of your identity? Are they something that you're attached to having? Um, it's a little bit more loaded than saying my hands are a part of my identity because those aren't a sexual thing. Um, they don't have any of that connotation, so uh, I had been a person with breasts since I was kind of younger, maybe than some of my peers. Anyway, they they were a part of my life, and I think we just got married. I wasn't, I didn't think I would be ready to not have breasts. I guess is the short answer. But as soon as somebody told me that one of my breasts was trying to kill me, I hated breasts. I didn't want anything to do with them. Uh, You know, it's like, if you find out your house is full of asbestos, (laughs) you know, let's move. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) that's, I guess where that came from.
1: Yeah. The, the journey from the biopsy to surgery to radiation and reconstruction was a long one. What were those what were those different challenges like? The different rhythms, the different moments, different decisions.
0: Sometimes I feel like that happened really fast because, um, unlike you, I do remember dates. So I had my doctor's appointment that didn't go well with the new primary on the twentieth of January. I was diagnosed officially on the eighth of February. That was pretty fast. So in between all of that, I had had uh, the mammogram, an MRI. Biopsy and then a diagnosis. That part was quick. And then I had surgery at the end of February. That first part was quick, which felt so good. It just felt good to be doing something immediately. Um, I couldn't wait to, you know, to excise that little beast. I also chose to have a reconstructive surgery and that was more difficult because there was a lot of pain in between those two surgeries in between the end of February and the middle of October. That was a rough long stretch where, you know, they moved my muscles and then I had tissue expanders that were slowly moving my my soft tissue but also my ribs, which are pretty sensitive little structures. That was rough. That was a long, rough bit.
1: It's funny that you mentioned earlier on the Mad Libs because I remember the Mad Libs as something you, know, you and I obviously spent a lot of time together not doing much. Just obviously wanted to be in close proximity and wanted to try to have fun. And the Mad Libs were sort of a mixed blessing because sometimes... They would fill a lot of time, but then we would do one that was really, really funny. And you'd say, no, I can't. It hurts too much to laugh. I got to stop. We got to do something different. You
0: know, laughter was not the best medicine at all of those times. Right. Eventually, right. fantastic medicine.
1: Right. So you did – there was one moment, though, that I do want to talk about a little bit where one of your doctors – you guys had one of those moments where I think every doctor, nurse, healthcare provider hopes that they can have with their patient, where again, it's that moment where you're separated from one another. It was when you went to have your first surgery and we said goodbye at the doors to the OR and you walk back there on your own. And again, I just remember you being poised and calm as I disintegrated. But your surgeon, when you guys were in the room together, sat down with you and put his arm around you tell that story because when that sort of thing happens it's just that that's it's why we want to do this job to have moments like that for people when they really just need another human being to reach out and be warm
0: well i hadn't had any kind of surgery before i had never been under general anesthesia i knew that um i was gonna wake up in a <laughs> blinding amount of pain and i i'd was definitely not unscared. I I may have looked stoic, but that's just sort of what I do. I think sometimes, um, I was nervous. And when we got into the room, uh, the anesthesia machine was not working, which is not what you (laughs) want to hear when you're afraid of being put under. Luckily there was another one right around the corner. They went to go fetch it, caused a little delay and my surgeon, who was a guy that I had a good feeling about from the second I met him, like a lot of surgeons, operates while listening to some music. He had turned on uh, the local classic rock station, which worked just fine for me. I don't know if a lot of patients get to hear about what what the music actually is that's playing while they're under, but I did. Um, and he... <laughs> as you say, sat down next to me, he got right on my level, which is not where he is when he's performing his operation. Right. He, so he lowered his stool. He sat down next to me, kind of put his hand on my leg and, uh, told me what was going on with the anesthesia machine. And he asked if the music choice was all right, which was adorable. (laughs) Uh, Of course it was fine. And then after it, it wasn't that long of a delay, but, uh, he just told me I was going to be fine and that I was going to do great. And afterwards, we found out that he was just, you know, praying to every possible deity that Stairway to Heaven wouldn't come. On. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. I remember
0: It was uh, heavily rotated.
1: It's funny because the the commitment to the classic rock, too, as we've become over the years, we've all become close friends. And classic rock is a big part of his life, so it turns out that was probably the right music to have playing to have him in a mindset where oh, you it can was,
0: it was his jam, yeah, you know. Yeah. He was that was his power music. He was gonna rock out and he did he did.
1: It, it's a long stretch from that point to where you had to be on a roller coaster wondering what was gonna happen, what the next steps were gonna be. Were there highlights, were there lowlights? To sort of set the context, when you had finished all of your treatment and you had reconstructive surgery, we were told that at about a year out, give or take, you would have a follow-up MRI to look to see if there was anything that was abnormal, and that's how we follow things. In that long interval of time, what was that? What does that roller coaster feel like? Because that is—that's what it is. It's a roller coaster.
0: They were um, absolutely highlights and lowlights. Um... While I was waiting for my second surgery, I really struggled with how I looked to other people. And I don't think that most people could have noticed, would have really noticed that I had a strange, hard tissue expander filled chest. But I I worried that um, my shirt would slip and someone would see a scar and they would be sad or upset by that, Um, that I would cause other people discomfort and pain just by walking around and and, um, having to see that. Knowing that someone else has suffered, you know, can sometimes cause people to have a little bit of that empathetic, reflective suffering. And I didn't want to walk around the world offering that all the time. So the moments when I was insecure about that were very difficult.
1: Where were there times where you felt the opposite, where you felt strong, where you felt like the roller coaster was in a positive direction?
0: I want to, I want to tell this little story and I don't know um, if the person that it's about will hear it now or maybe, quite a bit down the road, but we, uh, have two nieces now at the time. We only had one little niece and they're both just heaven. (laughs) We were very close to her. And I think she was only about two, maybe two and a half. And I remember the first time we came up to visit, uh, them while I was in between surgeries and I was really worried about that issue And I thought I would scare her. I thought she would notice me looking different and wonder why and then wonder if it hurt. And then just that whole thing, you know, your mind kind of runs away. And I remember being um, picked up at the airport by, you know, family group. She was there. She was in her car seat And I leaned over and to see her, and she just looked at me and said, can you pick me up? (laughs) And I thought, okay, that's all she cares about. That was phenomenal for my self-image and for my feelings about what I was offering to the people around me. Um, That honestly changed everything.
1: So as time goes by, you had that first MRI study. We had a 48-hour waiting period waiting for the results that was a tough 48 hours. Um, But it was normal. Yeah. And then time continues to go by. You and I, I remember, talked a lot about how it feels like people do, in their own way, in their own time, they head back into their own life. You know, they're incredibly supportive and helpful. They remain available but there is you, – you feel that voltage drop. You feel that things are moving – the winds aren't blowing quite as hard. Did you ever feel like you either get to or have to start thinking about what a life going forward is going to look like where there isn't this constant roller coaster?
0: That was actually harder for me than being on the roller coaster because – when i was um being when i was either having the surgery or later i had radiation i felt like i was in the on the front line of murdering some cancer which just feels good to be involved in a counterattack of that sort when all of that is over and they tell you you're fine. Go home. What? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, That feels weird, uncomfortable. It feels weird to stop fighting something that tried to kill you. Um, I didn't celebrate a funeral for cancer. I didn't bury it. I didn't see its body. I have no, you know, it it was just a very nebulous place to be. So that's really when I actually needed the most help uh, to try and, calm down <laughs> and and go about, as you say, in normal life. Weird things took me a long time to get back into like cooking. I don't know why. I had no appetite for a really long time between with, with surgery and cooking just felt weird. I love to cook. You know this. So that took a while. I had an amazing massage therapist who helped me kind of feel okay about what my body was doing and understand how it was recovering well, far better than I thought it was. Um, and that led to other things that I was able to do with my body that felt normalizing, like ride a horse.
1: Is there a connection that you have when you meet other people who've had cancer or is there a distance that there is for someone who's had cancer when, they're, when they encounter someone who, does, who never has and they find out. What do those spaces look like?
0: I'm not sure that I am a great responder to that because I, I didn't go to a support group. Maybe you've gleaned I'm a little extra empathetic. I, I, I didn't want to be in the same way that I was worrying about me giving pain to other people. I was worried about receiving extra pain while I was trying to just keep my head down, stay positive, which is what they tell you, and all of that. So, you know, I have had some good random interactions with young women that that are also cancer survivors. One quite a long time ago that I remember was on her journey to becoming a parent through a surrogate. And I guess there's probably plenty of people that I have met that haven't really shared, but I have met a lot of people that have like instantly, extremely shared their experience. So it feels good. It feels sort of like um, it's a shorthand, right, to, to an intimacy.
1: It's like you can become a conduit to help them in their healing process. They sort of, there's an instant common ground. And do you think that maybe they feel like, oh my gosh, I just... I I haven't been able to talk to all these other people. And now I've met this other woman who has been through uh, an experience dealing with cancer. And I'm just going to vent.
0: Sometimes. I also have noticed that um, as I've met women my age who haven't had cancer, but maybe are worried about it. They really like talking to me about
1: (laughs) being (laughs) okay. (laughs) About
0: being okay. About having had it and being okay now
1: what is it like to have gone through cancer and then talk to people about being okay? Is it an, is there, is it awkward? Is it, do you feel empowered? Do you feel strong? Does it make you feel nervous? And and I ask this, I mean, look, I've, I've been on this journey with you as close as I can be, but I, I didn't, I went through it next to you. I wasn't the one going through it. So it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thought
0: it totally varies on the interaction. I've had conversations where I felt sort of like embarrassed because they've been sort of, Oh my God, you're amazing. You're an inspiration. That feels weird. That's not who I am. Um, and I've also had interactions where people have been, I'm usually a pretty open person, but I, have had interactions where people have been so curious. You know, down to the minutia, where I felt like I was kind of used as a doorstop against their fear of what might happen to to them. Which, in the end, is also fine with me because whatever—that's what that person needed. It didn't cost me that much. It, you know, just sort of those conversations when they get a little extra Mm one-sided.
1: Is it ever ever that kind of awkward? Is it ever that sort of curiosity where it's? Someone just asking questions because you've been through something that's way out on the sharp edge of the human experience.
0: Yeah, that's by far the most common thing.
1: There was one time that I remember we were at a party and we met. We were meeting a variety of folks that we'd not met before. And one woman mentioned kind of in a vacuum that she had had breast cancer. It was in context, but I remember you said, I'm a survivor too. And she wasn't looking at you when you said it. And she pivoted 90 degrees and you guys locked eyes. And there was just a shared There was a shared moment that I said, you know, it's awful that you both had to go through this. But in that, that you can look at each other, you've just met and there's clearly something, a bond that you guys already have. Is that just observer bias or do, do those dynamics exist?
0: I think they do. I, I don't know if it's like, it's not like I walk through life thinking I'm wearing this cape of sisterhood. <laughs> right. Um, but absolutely, in those moments, it's nice to, to look around us and say, like, oh, this really weird, messed up thing that might be still, I'm kind of dragging around like a half-severed tiger tail <laughs> that's starting to smell funny. You know, it's not, sometimes it doesn't completely leave you. So it's nice to kind of look around when you're in a place after cancer, where you're supposed to be grateful for every moment that you're alive and you are, but you're still kind of all roughed up. It's that's, that's really nice to, to meet other people that you kind of can see that they might understand that do, weird, weird place to be.
1: Do folks in that situation, do you feel like they are more likely to pivot the conversation because they've had the same thing and say, let's just talk about anything, but or is it that you want to share your experiences and connect?
0: Totally depends on the situation and the and the person. There, there's any number of social situations that nobody wants to talk about cancer. No one wants to. I remember uh, a different party. Where a good friend of mine was encouraging me that it was fine, that uh, you know, yeah, speak your truth, sort of, go ahead, and I, I to prove her wrong <laughs> at, a, <laughs> at a poor young man's uh, expense, turned to a stranger and said, like, yeah, I just, I just had all these surgeries, and I had a mastectomy, and I had cancer, and oh, couldn't have gone worse, lead balloon to the extreme. So sometimes, no more often it's sort of like a little let's exchange emails you know uh, i have something for you uh, about an after cancer experience that you might be heading towards that i i can speak to
1: so as the years have gone by and it's now been a host of years how does it how and when does it cross your mind is it an ever present thing is it something that you feel like sometimes you go a long stretch without thinking about the fact that at one point you had cancer and had to go through all of these things. How does it sort of manifest itself as you have progressed through many, many years now?
0: I guess for me, cancer maybe didn't leave my life as quickly as it left my body. um, Because the rest of my family's experiences with cancer, we lost my dad my mom was re-diagnosed. It took a while for me to as you say kind of, you know, stop thinking about that stuff on a day-to-day basis, um stop just being terrified by it. Now it's really MRI time that the only it's really the only time that I that I really worry or even though I I have had a mastectomy and I have had reconstructive surgery and and now I have implants. I still do kind of self-exam just to make sure that everything still always feels normal. And so, yeah, I think about it when that happens. Sometimes I hate October because there's pink everywhere and sometimes I don't want to think about it, which, you know, maybe is not a great attitude to have, but sometimes I feel like I've thought about it enough. I'm so glad that it's talked about more, and it's thought about more, and people are more open with their stories, but um, yeah, sometimes some days I just I'd like to watch the Patriots win a football game without <laughs> thinking about cancer,
1: yeah, as you've been able to go through and and been through this huge, hugely transforming event, obviously, there were some tools that you had whether you had them at the time or had to develop them that what would you say for someone else who either directly or indirectly has to deal with a cancer diagnosis what are those key tools for people to think about having the back pocket to help them navigate the roller coaster like you had to navigate it
0: wow it's hard to look back and see like what actually i used to get through that We did use some humor from time to time. Gosh, it's great to have a wonderful spouse (laughs) for that. I highly recommend it. If you can acquire one prior to a cancer (laughs) diagnosis, you absolutely should. We Um, had that
1: extraordinarily boring detective book, and I read it aloud, and it was perfect. It was so bland, dry, and boring, but it just ate up so many hours where you weren't laughing and
0: and the Harry did. Potter audiobooks.
1: Yeah, those were great. Were great. Yeah.
0: Tools that other people can use. I uh, functionally, I thought a lot about what my body was going to be experiencing in recovery from surgery. So I remember we had that conversation early on where I'm thinking, okay, my, pector, my pectoral muscles are going to be moved how do i use those on a day-to-day basis how do i you know you don't think about isolating a muscle until you realize it's going to be displaced so i realized the first thing i do when i'm cold is kind of like hunch my chest together and I, it was february san diego <laughs> but uh i remember saying to you uh the house is going to be warm. We got to keep the
1: house warm. Yeah, <laughs>
0: let's get some sweaters. Yeah, some front zip stuff. Right. Yeah. Wow,
1: I forgot about that, uh, but I remember that. Th- now the I remember home. going on those shopping trips. Absolutely,
0: you got to find somebody yeah. that's going to wash your hair every yeah. now and then because yeah. you can't lift your arms for a while. There's a, any host of things that are just random, stupid life tasks
1: that are difficult. One thing that you had though was you were always very good at articulating what you needed. And I think especially when you were in the hospital or in the office or something that it was, it wasn't mean. It was just, this is what I need. I'm hurting and I need some medication. I'm nauseated and I need something. I need some help getting up. There was never, everyone that was around you knew what was up and could immediately respond to it, which is good because you're there, you want to help. And It can be difficult to ask. You were always very good at saying, this is what I need now. This is what I think I'm going to need in a day. This is what I'm going to need in a week. And so it allows the people who are helping to take care of you, who are on the journey, the physicians, I think, in terms of their decision-making as well, along with you, being able to have a clear prism of what your vision was makes a big, big difference.
0: I think that was extremely helpful. And I think, um, it's something that's hard for a lot of people.
1: It's very hard for for a lot of people. It's
0: hard for a lot of women. It's hard for men. It's hard for lay people in a hospital to not just to, to not feel like they're being in a position or being needy. You know, there are a host of people that are there for better or worse to give you what you require if they don't know what you require, you won't get it. So yeah, you you have to be a little blunt sometimes. I think I probably tried not to be rude, but if it was a question of me being like slightly throwing a non sequitur into a super fun lunch party and saying, everybody, I'm exhausted and I need my pain medication and you got to go. <laughs> if it was a question of, of, managing a need versus being slightly less polite than usual. I had to make that choice. It was important to make that choice. And I think my friends and family were happy when I did, you know, nobody wanted to have heard the next day. Oh gosh, we totally overdid it and just can't get out of bed. And.
1: So how far do you let yourself look? Ahead? Yeah.
0: Ooh. (sighs)
1: And I've never asked you that question before.
0: I think it varies from day to day. Yeah. Gosh, I think maybe that's one of the ways that this has changed me a lot in that I don't really look that far ahead. And and that can be a completely good thing, right? We're told to stay in the moment and enjoy it. I definitely do that more. And so, yeah, I really don't. I like to wonder about the future, but I don't picture it so much or or really invest myself in a vision of the future which is silly i'm fine <laughs> i'm good i'm healthy but i do have a sense of the unexpected in life and when we were married 5 months prior to my cancer diagnosis i was not thinking in 5 months i'm going to get surgery for cancer so yeah i i i keep it small i keep it a little small
1: well i'm glad that i get to keep it small with you (laughs) it's a pleasure we do have a lot of fun together yeah thank you this is a a tough story to tell but it's an important story for everyone to be able to participate in and learn from so i'm really really grateful that you came on to talk about this with me
0: thank you thanks for um Thanks for having the conversation. It's not easy.
1: Let's go inside and hang out with the family. Let's do it. Love you.
0: Love you. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETSshow. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.